So again, please let yourself sit in a way that's comfortable and at ease. I'm told that last week, um, um, which I missed, there were two women who came to do some meditation and teachings who'd also been involved in the um, Tibetan project to assist um, the United Nations in finding out what was happening to Tibetan children and so forth. And that it was interesting but also very intense, the stories, and very difficult in some ways. That's what I heard. Maybe perhaps uh, too difficult in certain ways for popular kind of elaboration. Um, But I heard about that and I began to reflect on my experience being in Dharamsala with the Dalai Lama. Um, And one of the things that he does as a practice is that when people walk out of Tibet over the Himalayas to escape to India as refugees um, in the course of um, these years, um, he personally every morning after his meditations in his own inner practice goes out and greets every, every new arrival personally who comes to Dharamsala and offers them his prayers and his blessing and often listens to their stories every morning when people come. Um, And I began to reflect um, about how is it possible that someone could hear those difficulties for their beloved people, and he weeps with them, and then sometime later in the day give teachings on compassion and on happiness and well-being. And as he says, if you can't be happy, what good is your spiritual practice? How does one hold all of the joys and the sorrows of this world. I also am aware that just a couple of days ago, and there's a few people in this room whose faces I recognize, we concluded our two-month winter retreat, which um, was quite wonderful. And in the course of it, for various participants, there was very deep realizations of Um, wisdom and understanding and deep compassion, healing for things that had been there for their whole lives, the kind of suffering that people had lived through, Um, as well as just imagine being with yourself for a month or two months in silence. It's like this cartoon that was in the New Yorker this week that I like very much that shows a car going down a highway, the kind of vast landscape, and the uh, road sign there as it's entering this huge landscape says, your own tedious thoughts next 200 miles. <laughs> so, what I decided to try to speak about tonight, um, which follows from that retreat, uh, is enlightenment. Um, because it's central to the teachings of the Buddha, awakening. And while we have all kinds of practices of the foundations of mindfulness and the practices of compassion and forgiveness and loving-kindness and the Eightfold Path and teachings of the factors of enlightenment, in some way, this is the most central question of all. How do we hold this? How can we live as a human being and be awake and truly free? Because we tend to live, as you know sometimes, um, instead of in the awakened heart, in the small sense of self. 
Thomas Merton puts it this way, of what avail is it if we can travel to the moon, if we cannot cross the abyss that separates us from ourselves? This is the most important of all journeys, and without it all the rest are useless. So a story for you before we speak about enlightenment, or maybe as a part of it. This comes from the Tales of a Magic Monastery, one of my favorite stories, by Theophane the monk, who said he would go to the magic monastery when he got sick and tired of what was happening in his own monastery. Because you can, I'll just let you imagine the rest of that. I'm a monk myself, and when I arrived at the magic monastery, somewhat desperate, the question I really wanted to ask is, what does it mean to be a monk? I finally did when I encountered the guest master, but for an answer I got a peculiar question. Do you mean in the daytime or at night? Now what could he mean? When I didn't answer, he picked it up again. A monk, or a nun, like everyone else, is a creature of expansion and contraction. During the day, they are contracted behind their cloister walls, dressed in a habit like all the others, doing the routine things you expect a nun or a monk to do. At night they expand. The walls cannot contain them. They move throughout the world and touch the stars. Oh, I thought, such beautiful poetry. But to bring him back down to earth, I began to ask, well, during the day when the monk or nun are in their real body? And he interrupted me. Wait, said the guest master. That's the difference between you and us. You people regularly assume that the contracted state is the real body. It is real in a sense, but here we tend to start from the other end, the expanded state. The daytime state we refer to as the body of fear. And whereas you tend to judge a, nun, a, a monk or a nun by their decorum during the day, we tend to measure our brothers and sisters by the number of persons they touch at night and the number of stars. So what does it mean to awaken? Somebody asked during the course of this two-month retreat in our question period, is enlightenment a myth? O nobly born, says the Buddha, O you who are the sons and daughters of the awakened ones, do not forget who you really are. Remember the clear light, the pure clear light from which everything in this universe comes, to which everything in the universe returns, the original nature of your own heart and mind, the natural state unmanifest. Let go into it, trust it, merge with it. It is your own true nature. It is home. That's from the readings from the Book of the Dead. There is what is called the sure heart's release, freedom for the heart, liberation, awakening, nirvana. The Buddha puts it this way. A wanderer came up to him one day and bowed and said to the Blessed One, I understand that you teach the end of the world, the annihilation of things. And the Buddha said, I teach annihilation, but only in one sense. This is peace, the highest happiness, the fading away of suffering, nirvana. And what is that? He goes on, enraptured with greed, 
caught by anger, blinded by delusion, with mind ensnared, men and women aim at their own ruin or the ruin of others. But if greed, hatred, delusion are abandoned, then such a person neither ruins their own life nor others. This is the path to nirvana, visible, immediate, inviting, attractive. The extinction of greed, the extinction of hatred, the end of delusion, this is the extinction I teach. This is indeed called nirvana. And for a disciple thus freed, in whose heart dwells peace, nothing more is added or need be added to what has been done. That's the Buddhist teachings on nirvana. The end of greed, hatred, and delusion. Suffering is caused by our grasping, our fears, our ignorance, and there is a freedom. Nirvana is the putting out of the fires of fear and confusion. But in another way, it is also described as a shift of identity. Another wanderer went to the Blessed One and said to him, You are the Buddha. The Buddha said, That is so. He said, Tell me, in what way might I practice or live so as not to be seen by the king of death? And the Buddha replied, For one who would not be seen by the king of death, who goes beyond death, such a one grasps nothing in this world as I or mine. Not this body, these feelings, these thoughts, the the perceptions, the consciousness itself. When there is no one to take and say, this is I or mine, then one enters what is timeless or eternal. Now these are the Buddha's words for it, the absence of the fires of greed and hatred, the shift of identity from taking things to belong to us. I mean, look at your own mind. Does it listen to you? Does it do what you say? How about your body? Tell it, don't grow old. See what it does. Your feelings? How many people in this room control their feelings? Please raise your hand. No one's quite that deluded. This is a feminine version of that awakening from a different tradition. I am the first and the last. I am the honored one and the scorned. I am the mother and the daughter in every part of birth, both. I am the barren one who has borne many sons. I am the bride and the bridegroom. And my husband is my father, and I am the mother of them all. I am the incomprehensible silence, and I am the voice whose sound is everywhere. I am the utterance of my own name, for I am knowledge and ignorance. I am the joining and the dissolving. I am what lasts and what goes. Hear me in softness and learn me in roughness. I am the hearing in everyone's ears and the speech which cannot be heard and I am cast forth on the face of the earth, and I am called truth. Give heed then, you who listen, for I am the one who alone exists and does not exist. And there is no one to judge me, for I am beyond death. This is from the perfection of the mind, the Nag Hammadi Gospels, the scrolls that were found in the 
caves, the Nagamadi caves in the Middle East from the Gnostic tradition. So all of the practices of the Blessed One, of the Buddha, it said, when the Buddha was asked, what do you teach? He said, I teach only two things, suffering and the end of sorrow, the awakening to freedom or liberation. Now, sometimes it's described as the absence of greed and hatred and delusion. That's what enlightenment is. Sometimes, again, it's the shift of identity from being caught in that which we experience in time to that which is timeless. When I lived in India with the teacher Sri Nisargadatta in Bombay, very wonderful meditation master and guru, I was so happy being around this person because he was a human being that didn't want anything. Want nothing from the world and nothing from you. It's an amazing thing to sit with somebody and be with someone who wanted absolutely nothing and who was so joyful all of the time. And people would ask him about different things because he seemed to live in the state of, of joy no matter what happened. Are you God-realized, one day somebody asked him? And he said, oh, the gods, they create universes, they destroy them over and over. Those gods can't touch me. They're only part of the universe. Who I am is beyond them all. Somebody else said, well, you're an old man. Are you afraid of dying? He said, I am insulted, sir. What do you mean? I was never born. This body and mind, this, this meat body, this food body, do you take that to be who I am? It has nothing to do with me. I never took birth. How could I ever die? Don't you know who you are? He would answer in those ways. And he was kind of like a cross between Fritz Perls and Krishnamurti, you know. <laughs> he would do a dialogue with people as soon as they came in. Where are you coming from? And you could answer him on whatever level you dared. One day, someone was sitting with Nisargadat and said, I see you here in your daughter-in-law's house waiting for lunch to be served, and I wonder if you're hungry or impatient because the meal is late like the rest of us. I mean, what's it like in your consciousness? And he laughed, and he said, I see as you see and hear as you hear, taste as you do. I feel hunger and thirst and expect my food to be served on time, and impatience will arise if it's not. It's very interesting, isn't it? All this I perceive quite clearly when starved or sick my body and mind go weak. But somehow as I perceive I'm not in it, I feel myself as if floating over it, aloof, detached. Even not aloof and detached. There's aloofness and detachment as there's thirst or hunger. And the awareness of it all and a sense of immense distance as if the body and mind and all that happens to them were somewhere far out on the horizon like a screen where things appear and disappear, a movie screen, unaffected. I am none of the things that arise, neither the subject nor the object. What do you mean you're not the subject or the object? He said, you identify yourself with things so easily. Everything you say, this is me or mine. I cannot do so. Look, he said, it's like this. My thumb touches my forefinger. Both touch and are touched. When my attention is on the thumb, the thumb is the feeler, and the forefinger, myself. Shift the focus of attention, and the relationship is reversed. This is myself, and now I feel this other. 
I find somehow by shifting the focus of consciousness, I become the very thing I look at and experience the consciousness it has. I call this capacity of entering into other focal points of consciousness love. You can give it any name you like. Love says, I am everything. Wisdom says, I am nothing. Between these two, my life flows. At any point of time and space, I can be subject and object, and so I express it by saying I am both and neither and truly beyond. And in this great dark space, there is then only one movement, the movement of love. So what is this awakening? Is it the end of greed, hatred, and delusion, nirvana? Is it the shift of identity to not be attached or identified with the things of this world? I actually don't like to speak about the word enlightenment unless I add to it the letter S. Enlightenments. Because it seems that there are a number of enlightenments. You know, if you talk about God and you only talk about God as Jehovah or Yahweh or Allah or something, you get in big trouble. I'm sure you've been noticing that in the news lately. In terrible ways, when there's only one God and I have the name for him, generally it is, and sometimes it's her, but even more often it's him, then there's all this terrible thing that happens. But actually, many gods, that's the truth, many And same for enlightenment. No greed, hatred, and delusion. Hey, sounds good. No identity with things that arise. Yes, they come, impatience arises, difficulties come. It's not who I am. Even moment-to-moment enlightenment. One of my teachers, Buddhadasa, said enlightenment is not something far away. It is here for everyone to experience moment-by-moment any moment that the heart and mind is present and awake to what is without grasping or resisting, without identifying. He called this moment-to-moment nirvana. And that's also there in the Buddhist scriptures. Anybody can see that if grasping and aversion were with us all day and night without ceasing, who could ever stand them? Under that condition, living beings would either die or become insane. Instead, we survive because there are natural periods of coolness of heart, of wholeness, of ease. In fact, they last longer than the fires of our grasping and fear. It is this that sustains us. We have periods of rest again and again, making us refreshed, alive, well, and whole. Why don't we feel thankful for this everyday nirvana. Suzuki Roshi said, strictly speaking, there are no enlightened people. There's just enlightened activity. If you think I'm enlightened already, you've missed it. But in this moment, one moment after another, there is the presence to be with things as they are, without resistance or grasping, the freedom of heart that is possible for every human being. But there are some secrets to it. They're not actually very secret. They're pretty obvious. The first, as Suzuki Roshi would go on when he spoke of his own enlightenment, 
was the moment he said that I realized that nothing can ever be repeated. Nothing can be repeated. It's always somehow new. And when we understand this, we see with beginner's mind, with the eyes of freedom, this moment as it is. He puts it another way. He says, the basic teaching of Buddhism is the teaching of transiency or change. This is the truth for every existence and no one can deny it. Wherever we go, it is true. When we realize the everlasting truth that everything changes and find our composure in it, we find ourselves in nirvana. Now what practice leads us to an enlightened life? What practices, what process? The various practices that are taught in the the tradition of the elders here at Spirit Rock, but that are part of so many great spiritual paths. Virtue or integrity. It's really hard to have a freedom of heart if we're killing or stealing or lying. You know, it's hard to even sit and meditate after a day of killing and stealing. Try it, right? So the first ground practice to free the heart is to tell the truth and to not harm other beings. Then there's the practices of quieting the mind, of cultivating attention so we live more in the reality of the present. There are the practices of loving kindness and compassion because the world is woven in joys and sorrows. The 10,000 joys and the 10,000 sorrows make up this human existence. There are the practices of letting go, of releasing or maybe better put, letting be, of bowing to what is, and of the shift of identity to know things as they are that we've been caught in and to see with the purity and clarity of heart and mind, this too is part of the way things are. It's not what I need to grasp or worry about or cling to. There's a kind of inner purification that comes Or maybe there's just a returning to the well-being that is natural to our hearts when we're not caught in the small sense of self. There's healing, which is really a practice of compassion and opening and touching with the heart the things that have been closed. And by virtue of these many forms of practices that lots of us in this room have engaged in, We enter the stream. Buddhism talks about this, stream entry, awakening to liberation. And certain monasteries teach entering the stream by becoming so still and concentrated and deep in moment-to-moment awareness, often on, on a long retreat, that the attention can notice thoughts as they first arise and sounds when they appear in the whole construct of thoughts and desires and images, each as they arise out of nothing and as they vanish. And somehow the sense of self dissolves and drops away into a silence beyond the body and mind. The sense of ourself ceases in the way that we know it. And that's called entering the stream. And it's a very wonderful experience that happens to people sometimes. 
On the other hand, that's only one way that it happens. My teacher, Ajahn Chah, used to say, if you've been practicing for six months in this monastery and you haven't entered the stream, you haven't been doing it right. And this was people who weren't on these long, intensive retreats, dissolving their body and mind the way that I described. He talked about it this way, as the unconditioned. He said, even throughout the day, you will notice the changing conditions of light and dark and gain and loss and praise and blame, and how you yourself identify with them as mine, as what should be and what shouldn't be. But as you sit, even for a moment in your meditation and become quiet, as you walk in meditation, as you pay attention, you can begin to rest your awareness not in the changing conditions of life, but in the pure knowing itself, the unconditioned awareness, that pure consciousness which knows these words that you're hearing now and sees the sights and experiences joy and love and fear and anger and all those things and yet is untouched by them. To rest in what he called the one who knows, in the pure knowing. And this is to step from the conditioned to the unconditioned. One Tibetan Lama, one great Tibetan Lama who visited him, was listening to his teachings and said, this sounds very much like the teachings of Dzogchen, one of the Tibetan um, versions of descriptions of awakening. And you go to see a, a, a teacher in that lineage, and instead of saying you have to do a long retreat or you have to have this or that experience, all that's asked in a very immediate and direct way is that you look directly into the question, who am I? Who do I take myself to be in this moment? Who is listening to these words? And there is an awakening that is possible in this moment for us to know that we are none of these changing conditions, but the pure knowing itself. Like that. Sounds easier, actually, doesn't it? It's said in the tradition of the elders that there are a number of gates to awakening, to enter the stream of truth, and three of the most common gates spoken of in this tradition are the gates of emptiness, the gates of suffering, and the gates of impermanence. The gate of impermanence comes when we willingly let ourselves look, as happened in dialogue with the Buddha over and over in India. People would come and sit with him, and he'd look them in the eye and say, my friend, do your thoughts stop changing? No. How about your feelings? Are they always changing? Yes, they are, sir. How about your perceptions, your bodily experiences? Yes, they're always changing. Can you find anything that is not changing, sir? I cannot. And through this dialogue, people began to look very directly at what makes up human life and see that no matter where we look, we live in the sea of change. On the retreat that we had here for two months, people would get quieter and stiller and deep, deeper. And then you had the experience that instead of thoughts and sounds and feelings, that they start to become like vibrations and your breath is this little tingle of a vibration at the heart, and a thought arises, 
and you feel it even before the thought comes, when you're very still, it's like the mind is about to burp. There's this little pre-thought experience that comes, and it's a little vibration, oh, a thought is going to come out of nothingness, and oops, there it comes, and it disappears, and then a sound comes, and maybe a memory arises, but instead of being what they are, they're seen as just the play of energy in the space of awareness. Everything changes. This great sense of resting in the center, in the heart, and knowing that nothing can be repeated, that is all a dance, and finding that still point in the midst of it all. Your composure. Sometimes that letting go into freedom happens not through impermanence, but through sorrow and suffering. The death of someone we love, some tremendous loss that takes place, or looking out into this world and seeing, as the Buddha said one day to the monks and nuns on Vulture's Peak in Rajgir, address it them, said, my friends, everything is burning. What is burning? The eye is burning, the nose is burning, the tongue is burning, the body is burning, the mind is burning. And with what fires are they burning? I declare to you, they are burning with the fires of greed and grasping, with the fires of anger and hatred, with the fires of delusion and ignorance. Consider this deeply, and the followers of the Blessed One, those monks and nuns who sat with him at that time, considered deeply and became weary of attachment to the grasping of sights and sounds and tastes and smells, thoughts and perceptions, to the aversion or hatred for them, to the identification, and realized instead that awakening which is free beyond all that arises and passes away. Sometimes when people come and sit in meditation, even for an evening, but certainly for retreats, practice, what begins to happen, instead of them getting happier and more joyful, is that the sorrows of the world that we carry within the cells of our body show themselves. And you sit and you feel the traumas of your own life and the fires of the suffering that we cause to one another and the grief from loss and pain and despair. And you see your own death maybe over and over again or the suffering that comes from warfare and racism, the insanity in the world that's so prevalent in the news at this time, such as what's going on in the Middle East. So much suffering caused by greed, hatred, and delusion. And then something begins to become clear. This is uh, one person's description of that gate. One evening, around Easter time, I was in my room looking at the modern crucifix on the wall in my nunnery, which is all we had. And then I was overcome by sadness and pain. My body began to ache, and I lay down from my prayers and meditation onto my bed in an agony and felt as if I was dying. It was so real. 
I was taken over and began to weep for Jesus on the cross, his suffering and death. And then I was Mary, holding her crucified child, and I knew that the crucifixion wasn't over. And I was the starving mothers in Biafra who could not feed their children, and the mother trapped in an earthquake in China, struggling desperately to save her child. And I was the young men, all the soldiers in the senseless wars, and I was the cows and pigs on the way to the slaughterhouse, and the modern generals and the Roman soldiers, and the welfare mothers and the slumlord, and all who would die and all who were in pain. And I lay there, watched over by the pain of it, and I couldn't bear it. My heart wept. And then Jesus was there in my body, and we were holding it together, the suffering of the world, and I could see that to hold it in mercy was divine. It broke open my heart and changed my life. And when I met pain, it was not my pain, but the holy pain that opens the heart. This is the purpose of life, to connect us to the great heart of compassion, mercy within mercy. Or maybe it's the gate of emptiness. We enter the gate of sorrow and see this world and the doorway of our heart opens. But sometimes we look in another fashion and we discover that life is a dream, that yesterday and last week and the whole of the millennium that ended a couple of years ago vanish with no trace whatsoever. And even the sitting that just happened, all the thoughts and feelings, where did it go? It completely disappears into nothingness, which is where it was born from. And we begin to realize somehow that there is a space out of which all experience arises just now, to which everything returns, where we can rest and the sense of ourself and being somehow separate from all the rest begins to drop away and we realize, oh, I had this whole story about who I am. And yes, it's sort of true. I mean, you need to know your zip code and pay your taxes and things like that. But is that who we really are? And if you think it is, wait till you get to the very end of life and look back and say, wow, look at what's happening to me. This whole dying thing is happening. This is amazing. And you look at your life, and it looks very real when you're in the middle of it, and then, what was that? How did that happen? What a story! Man, a pretty good movie, but what? And this is not just an idea. This is the truth for each of us. And there comes this wonderful opening. Oh, I don't have to take it so seriously. You can care for it and love and be compassionate, but is this who we are? And there comes somehow in it a sense of holy perfection and joy. Somebody asked Suzuki Roshi, Zen master, at one point at a, at a, when he was talking about weddings, you know, and um, let's see if I can find this passage. Marriage ceremony. He says, I, somebody said, I don't understand, Roshi. You recite... The same thing at every wedding. You say to the man who's there, you have married the perfect wife. And then you say to the woman, and you have married the perfect husband. You say that no matter who it is. (laughs) 
He smiled mischievously and he said, Oh, isn't it true? When we see the emptiness of things, the dance of it, we begin to realize that what's given to us through our life and our karma is just what we need to awaken. Now, some people say, well, okay, this all sounds, you know, interesting, but none of this happens to me. You know, what is this awakening stuff anyway? Can't, you know, I mean... So one young monk asked the master, however can I become liberated? And the master replied, whoever has put you in bondage. I am a teacher for hundreds and hundreds of students, said this person who I interviewed, and they, many of them have experienced powerful meditative openings, but this hasn't been my way. For a long time, this was the hardest thing to accept, that nothing happened. I'm not a person with big enlightenment experiences. For 30 years, I've just practiced without being, trying, to be caught, trying not to be caught by my own ideas of discouragement or success. I could go for months of intensive retreat and not, no spectacular experiences would happen. This was especially hard for the first 10 years, but at least I didn't get trapped into believing I was some special spiritual person. Yet somehow, things have changed. What most transformed me were the hours of paying attention, giving a caring mindfulness to whatever I was doing. I learned the inner dropping of burdens wasn't going to happen all at once, but again and again I dropped the burden of judgment, of fear, of distrust, of tightness in the body and mind. I discovered how automatically the tightness could come, and with that realization, I started letting go, opening finding an ease moment to moment in this life. The teachings began to make sense that in reality there is nothing to find or get, no coming or going, that from the ground of being, nothing ever really happens or will happen. Seeing this was like a confirmation of what I knew. I became less serious. My kindness grew deeper. Oddly enough, my friends tell me I've become more like myself. They say there's been a very big change in me, but it wasn't produced by some special event. I think it's just the fruit of being present over and over in each moment. It's that simple. So all these different stories and ways, and what they all speak to is a freeing of the heart, a shift of identity, seeing the sorrows of the world that come when we grasp and releasing them seeing the impermanence of the world and learning that we can move through with composure and graciousness, seeing the emptiness of the world. No matter what you experience, loneliness, fear, grief, and pain, beautiful things, happiness, and joy, there is a place that knows them all just as if we were sitting in the movie house and in the moment woke up and said, boy, this is a sad movie, isn't it? You know those moments? Or, boy, this is an exciting one, isn't it? This is true of our life right now. And those moments are a great treasure. The moments when we awaken without judgment or resisting, the spaciousness of heart that has this beautiful reality to it of presence, 
without grasping, without trying to make it different. They're holy. So when somebody asks, is there enlightenment? We started to talk about this, the teachers, and thought about all these wonderful enlightened beings that we'd met in different forms, Sister Dipankara and Punja and Krishna Baru, this wonderful teacher who came from India, that she was a, a teacher in Calcutta who came and visited us. And I began to think about the spirit and the form that enlightenments happen and manifest. And I'll tell a few more stories tonight since we're telling stories. I think about Deepama, who is this grandmother and great saint from Bengal, from East India, whose manifestation of enlightenment was love and dedication. She entered her retreat and training after her husband and one of her children died, and she became terribly, first depressed and then terribly ill, so that she wasn't sure she was going to stay alive. And then someone told her about meditation, and she said, I have to do it. And she couldn't walk up the steps of the meditation center. She was so sick, she crawled up, crawled up the steps, and said, I must do this practice. You must help me. And the teacher gave her the practices of presence and awareness, mindfulness of compassion. And she became an extraordinary teacher herself of um, all the great um, meditations of this tradition. Um, One of my teachers who had trained her said that she used to appear at her meditation interviews um, spontaneously. He would say, I'd like to see you, you know, tomorrow afternoon. And he would be sitting there and she would just appear out of thin air and sit in front of him. And he would have his interview and then she would dissolve and disappear. Now, I didn't see her do that. She taught me a lot of things, but, but he said it. I don't know. But that wasn't her only other, her, her, her great strength. Her great strength was really her loving kindness. She had a field of tenderness and care about her so that whoever visited her, um, she would most of all want to bless. And she would give the, you know, in, in, in West India, they don't kind of bow to each other in this nice kind of prissy way that people do at Buddha Center sometimes. They give each other hugs. You know, I go in and I was bowing to her when I first met her, and she said, oh, no, 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 and she came over and she just threw her arms around me, hugged me really good. One time I went and I was having such a difficult time, and she said, oh, the poor meditation teacher having a difficult time, sort of held me. She said, you must sit, you must be dead, more dedicated. And then she did this blessing, and she just put her hands over every part of my body, and may you be well, may you be happy, this kind of blessing, loving kindness. And I started to smile and smile and grin and grin, by the time she was done, I didn't stop smiling for three days. It was just like, whew, that's something. Dedication and love. It's like Amachi, this saint who comes from South India and goes into a trance and puts on the, the um, crown and the robes of the, of the goddess of compassion, of divine, the divine mother, and sits there and will put a thousand people on her lap and hug them and bless them in one night, or two thousand, however many people come, I'll hug you and bless you. Fantastic. The Divine Mother. Or Karmapa, the 16th Karmapa, who was kind of playful, baby-like in one form, and this great, powerful yogi in another. Um, I remember when I first met him, he came to the U.S. the first time, and. I'd heard about this teacher coming, famous Tibetan Lama, and 
I'd been back from the monastery, and I went to the airport in Boston. He'd just arrived in America. So oh, I'll meet this guy. And I saw him come off with his retinue and so forth. And I looked at him, and I said, oh, another fat monk. You know, I've seen a lot of fat monks, and I'll bow and stuff. It's nice, but, you know, no big news or anything. So I went, and I bowed, and he grabbed my head and kind of pushed it a little further down on the ground, which I needed at that moment. And then... Um, I looked at him, and he looked at me so kindly. And then I kind of backed away. Other people were going to go get their blessings. And I got about 10 feet away from him. And all of a sudden, it felt like it was the Arctic. It was so cold. And all I wanted to do was go back and hold on to his robes. There was this big, warm, tropical field of some energy around him that was amazing. And later, he, you know, he came and performed the Black Crown Ceremony of compassion for people um, uh, this sacred ceremony, a big auditorium in San Francisco, thousands of people came. And when he puts on this crown that was given to him a thousand years ago by the emperor of China and took his um, crystal mala of beads and chants the uh, uh, chant of compassion, he becomes the Buddha of compassion. And you look in his eyes and they are so sad. They're the saddest eyes on the face of the earth. And he chants for the sorrows of every being that exists and just weeps. And then he finishes and puts the crown back and, you know, finishes his whole ceremony. And then he becomes playful again. He becomes like this big baby, you know, and you go and hang out with him and he, he's just the most joyful being. Mahasi Sayadaw, another version of enlightenment teacher in this lineage who came, Instead of being dedication or love or powerful, he was empty. He came and he was the most transparent person I ever met. He was this great and revered elder and he came to retreats that we taught here in the West Coast and in, in the East Coast and I'd studied with him in Burma. He was nearly 80 when he came and he walked in the room, he carried a fan as the Burmese monks did. He would sit down so you wouldn't even see him smile. He just sat down very quietly and he would teach and it was as if Nobody was there. Like the wind just blew right through him. And things came, things went, and he was just sitting there peacefully, quietly smiling, absolutely transparent. And then you get a teacher like Ajahn Jamnian, the forest master that comes every year to Spirit Rock, and come again in June, some of you have met, who instead of being empty is full. You know, he's covered with his medallions and shamanic. Um, Buddhas and, and all these different kind of tchotchkes that he wears, you know, um, thousands of, you know, different things. And he does, he's a shaman and an exorcist and a peacemaker and, a, you know, he's kind of like the, 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 the monk of abundance. And whatever you can imagine, it just pours out of him. And he wakes up early in the morning and he says, well, are we ready for Dharma, folks, you know? And he stays up late at night and, and he says, whatever, I'm... Uh, I'm game for anything, you know. And he says, if, if people come and bring me food and there's these abundant meals around them, I love the food and I can eat it and then I can teach Dharma. And if nobody comes, he said, I could use a diet. I sit here and I, I fast. And that's wonderful. And if someone takes me to show me all around San Francisco and all the sites, then I get to see what's amazing and I learn new things so I can teach the Dharma. And if nobody comes that it's peaceful and quiet and I can meditate and I'm very happy. And everything is a part of this sense of abundance and blessing and loving kindness. Um, and he says, yeah, 
He said, I haven't been angry that I can remember the, the last 20 years. It just doesn't arise in me anymore. Everything is just fine the way it is, thank you. That's pretty sweet. <laughs> Emptiness, fullness, or mindfulness. Remember when Thich Nhat Hanh came here? Two, three thousand people were at Spirit Rock, all waiting on the hillside and chanting and meditating and so forth, and talking to one another and having picnics, and all of a sudden Thich Nhat Hanh comes out. And he walks up the road here, and 2,500 people watch, and he takes a step so mindfully that everybody becomes present in a way that they haven't for a long time. His quality of mindfulness with every step, with every cup of tea he holds, is so present and dedicated and full that the world drops away. And you see that and you go, oh yes, here, this moment, here we are. Absolutely wonderful. So you get Ajahn Jamni in full and Thich Nhat Hanh mindful and Mahasi Sayadaw empty and the Dalai Lama who is compassion. You know, every morning he sees those people and he does his compassion. When he was here last, the summer before last, um, before he left, he made sure to get all the Secret Service people together with him, pose for pictures, you know. <laughs> And at the hotel where he was staying in the city, he got all the staff to come in, you know, the women who washed the floors and the people who cleaned the pots in the kitchen. Get the whole hotel staff. And he went down one by one and held everybody's hands and looked them in the eye and thanked them. Fantastic. So much compassion. His vows from Shantideva. May I be the protector for those without one a guide for all travelers on the way. May I be a bridge, a boat, a ship to cross over. May, be a, may I be an island for those who seek one, a lamp for those who need light, a bed for those who need rest, the wish-fulfilling gem, the horn of plenty. And until all beings pass from sorrow like great space and the elements of the earth, may I support the life of boundless creatures so that awakening mine and theirs can bring liberation and joy to us all. Those are some serious vows to take every morning. May I be the food for those who are hungry, the medicine for those who are sick. Or my teacher Ajahn Chah, who was wise, that was his quality. When I was, first met him, there was 45 monks in the monastery. He had very wasn't terribly well known and you know not such a good reputation among some other monasteries because he had a kind of strict form of practice and people were a little jealous of that and who's he think he is by the time he died a million people went to his funeral the king and the queen of Thailand and a million people went to this forest um, because his teaching was so wise and so simple that it spoke to the people of the whole nation in tapes and books. And what it was, it was the laughter of the wise. He would look at people and he would say, why don't you just see things as they are? If you hold on to them, does that make you happy? He would just ask. It's that simple, really. And everybody came, you know. People came from every form of every part of the society, the generals and the politicians and the farmers and the, those who were rich and those who were poor, and he treated everybody absolutely equally. 
You know, he'd look and say, are you suffering? Hmm, must be attached, huh? How's that? And then he would just laugh for a little bit. I remember when he came to our center in Massachusetts for a long retreat that we held there. and He said, you know, people are really dedicated in America. He said, they're, I'm impressed. They're, they practice better than my monks at home. He said, and he was out, everyone was out doing their walking meditation on the lawn of the center and so forth. And he said, it kind of looks like a hospital, doesn't it? They're all trying to get well here or something like that. <laughs> And so he'd sort of toddle around the lawn and go up to people as they were doing their walking meditation and look at them and say, I hope you get well soon. I hope you get well soon. But mostly, his teaching was to say, this is the way things are. Can you see the way things are? You have all your ideas about how you'd like it to be. This is the way things are in this human realm. So beautiful and so wise. So all these stories, I could go on and on, right? And you hear, I want this. I want this enlightenment, this love, this dedication, or these enlightenments. Okay, all right. Where should I go? What should I do? How do I find it? Mahasi Sayadaw, if you asked him, would say, sit. Long retreats and be very mindful, moment after moment. That's how to find it. Karmapa would probably say, bow. Maybe a hundred thousand times, maybe a million times. You know, and, and picture and visualize the Buddha of compassion and take that into yourself. The Dalai Lama would say, offer your life in compassion and kindness to every being you meet. That's the way to do it. Thich Nhat Hanh would say, rest in the mindful heart, in the reality of the present. This moment is the only moment. Ajahn Chah would say, just let go. You're hanging on too much. It's so easy. Just let it go. Ajahn Jamnian comes here and he says, empty, empty, happy, happy. <laughs> empty, empty, happy, happy. Deepama would say, you must dedicate yourself to what you care about most deeply in your heart and do it with all the love that you can bring. She would say. Suzuki Roshi would look at you and say, what are you trying to get? You are it. Already you are it. Let me see. I can find a passage. Oh, yeah. A woman told Zen Master Suzuki Roshi she found it difficult to mix her meditation practice with the demands of being a householder. I feel like I'm trying to climb a ladder. Every step upward, I slip back two steps. Suzuki Roshi laughed. He said, forget the ladder. When you awaken, you realize everything is right here on the ground where you are. And his teaching would be so simple. He would say, what is it that is keeping you from being in this moment as it is now? It is just the seeking, the idea that you're trying to get something else that keeps you from being with the suffering and beauty, the joy and sorrow of this moment as it is. Instead of waiting for the bus, why don't you realize you're on the bus? Or Punja, another teacher of wisdom in India, of Advaita Vedanta like Nisargadat, he celebrated when people would come to him. He would say, you're so beautiful. You don't see it. 
You already know. Let go of trying to be anyone other than yourself. Let go of seeking. Let go of the seeker. Oh, nobly born, there is a, a jewel, a priceless jewel that is sewn in the hem of your own robes, of your own jacket, of the shirt that you wear, and you're going around, you, the richest person in the world, are going around begging. Look in your own pockets. You don't have to go anywhere. So when James Barras went to be with Punja in India, James was one of the teachers here at Spirit Rock, was sitting there and listening to the teachings of this guru, and a lot of Punja's teachings are about grace, receiving the grace of this human life. And James, after some days, raised his hand and he said, you know, I, I really have practiced mostly in the Buddhist tradition, and we, have, we take refuge, and there's practices of virtue and mindfulness and compassion, but we don't talk so much about grace. Um, how do I know when I'm receiving the guru's grace? And Punja looked back and he said, you ask about grace? He said, you who live in California as part of this beautiful spiritual community and you showed me a picture of your wife and your family and you're a teacher of the Dharma and now you're here in India with the guru at his feet surrounded by spiritual seekers and receiving his teaching and you ask, are you receiving grace? (laughs) You are neck deep in grace. You are neck deep in grace. (laughs) You, the richest person in the world, is going around begging. Or as Ramana Maharshi, when people were crying and weeping as he was dying, this great Indian sage, and he looked at them with so much compassion and said, where could I go? Where could I go? You know this. Everyone in this room, somewhere inside you, knows the truth, that which is eternal and timeless. And we have all touched it in our way. O nobly born, you have tasted the stream. You have had your moments of awakening where you've been lost and caught so much in the stream and then woke up sometimes in great suffering when you realized, oh, look at that sometimes in great joy, and when you learn in that moment to trust, to let go, to remember who you really are. This is the purpose of spiritual practice, of all the difficulties that we might put ourselves through, to remind our hearts of what we really know. So the Buddha said, if it were not possible to free the heart from entanglement in greed, hatred, and delusion, in the small sense of self, I would not ask you to do so. But just because it is possible to free the heart, there arises the teachings of liberation to point the way. Swakato Bhagavata Dhammo Sanditiko Akaliko Ehipasiko Opanahiko Pachatangwe Titapu Winyuhiti. 
And the meaning of this chant is an invitation to remember that eternal truth that is always to be known in your own heart. It is open-handed, immediate, visible to all those who would look with eyes of wisdom, with a heart of compassion, given freely, spoken of, because it is already what you know. Let's sit for just a moment. In this world where there is much confusion among human beings, may you remember to rest in your heart's deepest wisdom, in the space of peace and compassion for all beings that is always there within you. May it be so. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.